Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Good evening, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host this evening, located in Kansas City, Missouri. And I'm a genealogist and historian. I'm the president of the Midwest African American Genealogical Interest Coalition. In addition, I'm a board member of the Missouri State Genealogical Association and also a member of the Association of Professional Genealogists. Our guest joining us tonight is Linda Cousins Newton, who is a storyteller, historian, writer, and educator. And she is coming on tonight to talk to us about the Black Seminoles and the um, Underground Railroad in that community, and et cetera. Are you there, Linda? Yes, I am. Good evening. How are you? Good evening. I am fine. And welcome to uh, the program this evening. Thank you so much. Uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself before we get into our topic here. Yes, well, as you were saying, I am a historian, but in addition to being a historian, I'm a storyteller, and also I'm a historical reenactor on the um, Black Seminole contributor by the name of Miss Johanna July, also known as Aunt Chona, who was a, a trainer of the Buffalo Soldiers' uh, horses and of some of the military personnel's horses during the period of the Black Seminoles. Uh, I also am uh, married uh, to a person who is a direct descendant of the Black Seminoles who came from Florida and escaped into the Bahamas during the period when they were under attack. And that's very curious how that came into being because uh, I did not know I had married a black Seminole descendant, even though I was a historian on the Underground Railroad, until I was doing research for a course that I was teaching online on Underground Railroad contributors. And there I found my husband's family's name in black Seminole history. And that's how I knew that mm-hmm. uh, quite kind of spiritual spiritually and synchronistically, they had connected me with their own descendants. I see. Well, talk to us about the uniqueness uh, of the black Seminole community and how can they be identified as abolitionists and liberators of their people? Yes. Well, first of all, the black Seminoles, also known uh, as the Estelustes to those who were the red Seminoles, were self-liberators. They had escaped from a period of bondage in places like South Carolina, Georgia, 
and they had come into Florida when it was under Spanish control. In fact, in 1693, an edict had been issued offering them freedom if they did come into Florida. Uh, this wasn't because the Spanish were so um, philanthropic in terms of trying to end slavery. They themselves had enslaved a lot of Native Americans and taken them to the Caribbean. And... Um, but they needed the Seminoles, they needed these um, black enslaved Africans to come in and to be sort of like a military buffer because the British were trying to gain control of Florida at that time. And so during that period, the Seminoles escaped from Georgia, they came in from uh, South Carolina, and they set up their own communities among the Red Seminole people, and not only did they set up their own communities where you had the Underground Railroad, which we have come to think of it as going into the north and into Canada, it was actually going into the south from one southern uh, terrain to another through the efforts of the Black Seminoles and the Red Seminoles combined. Uh, sometimes they would live together in a community, they would intermarry, and other times you had black Seminole communities that were miles away, but they would come together for military strategies and for protection of the land and of the people. So they not only were freedom freedomists in terms of freeing themselves, but they would go in to the plantations, and they would bring out hundreds of other slaves. In fact, at one period, the Red and the Black Seminoles went throughout uh, a particular portion of Florida and attacked and burned 21 plantations, sugarcane plantations, and about over uh, 350, up to 385 um, enslaved Africans were able to escape and become a part of of that freedom force. Did they help develop the uh, freedom trails? And you said that they didn't go north, they went south? Well, they came basically oh. into Florida where they were living. First, uh, they were under the Spanish, the hegemony of the Spaniards, until the, um, the English took over Florida for brief period of time from 1763 to 1783 and even though they also were slave holders and great proponents of slavery they offered freedom as well to the Seminoles and particularly the Gullah Geechee people who were living uh, on the coastal areas of Georgia and South Carolina if they would come in and they would uh, help them to protect their borders so uh, between living uh, with the, the Spani Spaniards and also living with the English, they uh, were able to maintain their freedom. The uh, Red Seminoles were able to maintain more control of their land, and they helped uh, many. Um, they helped many, many uh, freedom-seeking Africans to come into that area. But in addition. They were doing international trade. They were trading with Cuba, which at that time was under Spanish control. They were trading with the Bahamas, which was under British control. The, um, when the Brit British brought in a large number of 
blacks who had served in the Revolutionary War into Florida at that time. They also, um, at the time when the British ceded Florida back to Spain, they went with the British into the Caribbean, they went into Canada, they went into England. So you could say that the Underground Railroad, as I mentioned in my book, Free Globally, the International Underground Railroad, extended through the Black Seminoles to international terrain, Cuba. It went into Cuba, it went into Canada, went into the Caribbean, and also into Mexico. Okay. Was there, uh, again, on that, uh, the, the roots to freedom, um, was there a gentleman or somebody by the name of Peg Leg Joe? Uh, uh, I'm not familiar with that name. Peg. And songs that were following the, the drinking gourd? Oh, that was in, that was a, a person who was a, um, a white uh, conductor on the Underground Railroad that was in the south of, I don't know exactly what particular area, but he was not involved with the Seminoles. He was an independent person who would go in and help the enslaved Africans to escape in the south, but he was not really involved with the, with the black Seminoles. Okay, do you know? But you don't know if they formed any particular routes. Uh, you know, most of our listeners are <clears throat> familiar with the Underground Railroad in terms of there being certain routes, uh, tree markings, stations along the way, etc. Was that any uh, any evidence of that in the uh, the abolitionists and amongst the uh, the Black Seminoles? Well, basically, they operated in their area of where they lived. They didn't have any particular routes that they would take. They would just kind of independently go from plantation to plantation because a lot of them still had family and friends on the plantation. So you had quite a bit of, of, of uh, communication between the Black Seminoles and the plantations. So they they would go into plantations, into Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, and bring back their people from those particular destinations. So therefore, in answer okay. to that question, they pretty much stuck to the places where they had connections in those surrounding areas of Florida where they lived. Okay, and uh, you mentioned earlier about the um, there was an international flavor um, to this exodus and this uh, escape that the freedom seekers were taking. Uh, can you talk to us about that? I believe you mentioned uh, Cuba and the Bahamas, and what about Mexico? Yes, well, at a particular period of time, well, when Andrew Jackson, who was quite a nemesis to the Seminoles, red and black, he had uh, masterminded a, a um, campaign to just completely demolish the rebelling Native Americans, particularly those of the Creek, uh, the Red Stick Creeks in Alabama. So you had a battle of Horseshoe Bend around 1814, where thousands of warriors were slain by Andrew Jackson and his forces. They came into Florida and joined the contingent of the uh, 
the Seminoles there. The Seminoles really were given the name by the Spaniards because Seminole meant runaway, whereas in Jamaica, the Spaniards called them Cimarrones. You had the Maroons in Jamaica under the great Maroon leaders like Cocho, Kwaku, and, and Grandi Nanny up in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica. So you had a similar type. How did they, how did they make their way to Jamaica? Well, they did, uh, I'm not saying that the Seminoles themselves went to Jamaica. I'm saying that the Spaniards had uh, oh, col- okay, I'm sorry. had colonized Jamaica, and at a particular time, okay. you had the, the uh, run Jamaicans who, who were um, um, Africans who had escaped into the mountains, and they were called Cimarrones in Jamaica by the by the Spanish, whereas in uh, Florida they were called Seminoles coming out of that same type of uh, language, Cimarrones. And so what mm-hmm. happened was that uh, you had a collection of different types of people who became a part of that community. The blacks became like the interpreters. They were, because they spoke not only the English language, but they knew how the slave master thought. And so they were the interpreters, they were the advisors, one who was a great uh, Seminole leader named Chief Abraham. They called him the sense-bearer because he was an advisor to the top uh, Seminole chief whose name was Nicanopi. And uh, from these uh, links and and, uh, connections that they had, they went after Andrew Jackson had... uh, uh, defeated them. Well, they, they were never really defeated because they called themselves the unconquered people. But when he was able to get a certain number of them out of Florida and into Arkansas, which is now Oklahoma, when they found that they were going to try to re-enslave the Africans who were part of the Seminole Nation, a great black Seminole leader named John Horse also known as John Cavallo, had a connection and a very deep friendship with a red Seminole by the name of Wildcat, also Koakuchi. And when it appeared that the Africans among them were going to be re-enslaved in mass, John Horse and Koakuchi took a group of Seminoles, black and red, from Oklahoma into Mexico. And that's how you can really say that the Underground Railroad extended to Mexico because they were able to take these people there to escape being uh, enslaved. And they set up communities in Mexico, in the northern part of Mexico, where you still have black Seminole and Seminole lineage. Uh, they're, in, they're called Moscobos in Mexico now. And both John Horace and... Wildcat became very, very instrumental in Mexican society. They became, um, they helped to protect the borders from um, the Comanches and the Apaches who were kind of uh, really attacking the borders of Mexico there. They were able to protect the borders from those Americans who were trying to come into Mexico to enslave uh, the blacks that were there. Excuse me. Yes. Excuse me. Did that uh, was that then related to the Mexican-American War? Is that how they got started? 
No, not uh, they. They weren't necessarily related uh, in their work to the Mexican American War. They were basically there as they had a reputation for being very powerful warriors from their days in Florida, and so the the uh, Mexicans had invited them to come into Mexico. They would give them land there. They would protect the borders. So that's how they came to have an influence on Mexican society there. And then in 1870, uh, after the Civil War, they were invited to come into Texas because Texans were also having a lot of difficulty with the Apaches, and they asked them to come into Mexico, the scouts. They were supposed to get land, and they were supposed to have their families taken care of, but just as in Florida, where they had so many treaties dishonored, they did come into Texas. They did a great work. The uh, Buffalo soldiers there, who were black Seminoles, earned four medals of honor, congressional medals of honor, but after their services were no longer needed, uh, they were, you know, they had a lot of difficulty. Their people mm-hmm. were not able to get the food and supplies and care that they were supposed to be given northern land. So they had a profound influence all the way from Florida into Arkansas, which is now Oklahoma, into Texas and Mexico and the Bahamas where my husband's people uh, fled in the 1820s and established a community in a part of the Bahamas called Andros. So in Andros, you have the black Seminole influence there as well. So they uh, left Florida and wound up in Andros in the uh, Jamaican area. Well, So do we know how? Not the the Jamaican area. Uh, Andros is a rural island in the Bahamas. So they in the Bahamas, there. yeah. Yes, yes. So uh, they had, how did they get there? Did they have someone facilitate their getting there in terms of ships and whatnot? Well, they were doing... Do we know? Uh, these uh, Seminoles were very, very um, unusual people because during the days of, of slavery where you had our people being brutalized, whips and chains... At the same time, Uh just a few miles away, you had these people who were doing international trade with the Bahamas, descendants of of slavery doing international trade. And so they were told that uh, the Bahamas, being under British influence at that time, uh, that they could be free, you know, because slaveholders were coming in trying to kidnap the black Seminoles. In many cases, they were. There were three major wars, uh, and the Seminoles fought tooth and nail with three major wars. The first one was 1817 to 1818. Then you had the one from 1835 to 1842, which is called the longest and most costliest Indian war in American history. But when you really get into the the Seminole history, you find that it wasn't uh, just an Indian war. In fact, the major military uh, commander there, Jessup, Colonel uh, Sidney Jessup, stated, you can believe this is not an Indian war. This is a Negro war. So you had, uh, they lost 1,500 American lives, and they spent up to $20 million, which would have been billions of dollars today, 
on those wars. Then you had the War of 1855 to 1858, which was called the Billy Bowlegs War. And these people had such a profound influence in terms of having this type of society and doing international trade that they knew what was going on in different parts of the world. And some of the people coming in from the Bahamas told them about this area. And they went into Andros because it's a very low tide area. And these large ships could not come in to chase them and try to enslave them. So they made a very strategic move in going into Andros. And as I mentioned, there's still an influence of the Black Seminoles there. Are you familiar with a gentleman by the name of Gaspar Yanga? No, I'm not familiar with that name. Who led a revolt in the late 1600s or early 1700s? What's that, in Mexico? I believe so. Uh, Mexico, yes. Yes, I have heard of, I've heard of Yanga. Yes, I've heard of that revolt. He was South African. Okay. Were the Africans involved in that uh, particular revolt in Mexico? Well, uh, I don't know a lot about Yanga. I have heard of him. I have read a little bit about it. But they were, there were Africans uh, who were involved in that revolt. But that was isolated from the Black Seminoles. The Black Seminoles. Oh, I see. Were not in that particular part of Mexico. They were in the northern region, Coahuila. Mexico. What other country was on the Underground Railroad list? Um, uh, in terms besides of besides Mexico, in terms of the Black Seminole. Uh, well, basically the ones I had mentioned, Cuba, which was under um, Spanish control at that time. A lot of Black Seminoles uh, fled into Cuba when the British took over from 1763 Mm -hmm. to 1783. Of course, um, as I mentioned, the Bahamas, Mexico, Texas was under uh, Mexican rule at that time, so it it was a foreign country at that particular time, as was Florida. Florida wasn't even one whole um, state then. It was called uh, Las Floridas by by the Spaniards, and then in under British control, it was East and West Florida. So Florida, during the time of the Black Seminoles, was a foreign country, and uh, so you could really say they had escaped into the foreign country of Florida uh, because um, they were never really uh, Americans. They were, Uh, In the slavery period, of course, our people were not citizens, and when they escaped into Florida and a lot of um, Seminoles were born there, then they were born as citizens under the the Spanish. In those areas that we've uh, had under discussion here, are there any historical markers or monuments that tourists might be interested in if they visit uh, the Bahamas, Cuba. Well, it might be a little trouble getting into Cuba, but Texas and Mexico. Are there any, uh, what's that fort, uh, was it Fort Clark in um, Bracus, Texas, I believe? Am I saying that right? 
uh, Brackettville, Texas. Yes, that's where... Yeah, Brackettville. Right. That's where a lot of the scouts had lived uh, during the period of time when they came from Mexico uh, after 1870. And so you have um, the Black Scout Cemetery there. You have quite a number of Seminole descendants who are still doing a very important work on lifting up the Seminole legacy. So they have a celebration every September in Brackettsville, Texas, and uh, Mr. Dub Warrior is one of the Black Seminole descendants who's very involved with that. Um, you also have in uh, the Bahamas, you have uh, a lot of the handicrafts that were introduced by the Seminole women because uh, that's one other very distinctive factor about the Seminoles. The women were very okay. prominent in the work of the Seminoles. They were the farmers along with the men. They they did fishing. Uh, some of them even took part in the battles. Uh, they created beautiful artistic work that the uh, bags that the men would carry their bullets in. In fact, the women would sometimes make the bullets, and these bags have become um, expensive collectibles now, the bags. And also, the later on, after uh, the Seminoles were forced to go to um, Oklahoma, then you had a type of patchwork industry that developed among the Seminoles when they could no longer do the fishing and hunting that they used to do. They developed a very uh, significant craft industry. So you Linda, have... let me interrupt. Let me interrupt right now. Uh, yes. I believe we have some callers on the line. Of course, yes. Uh, you're on the line, caller. Go ahead. You're on the line, caller. Okay, well, we'll move along. Maybe they'll call back. Uh, is uh, Fort Moses uh, still standing? And uh, those settlements, you said there were descendants uh, still in that area. Are they in the original settlements? And what would the names of those settlements be if people wanted to uh, traveling through that area of Texas? Okay, uh, well, there's... Brackettville, which where they have the uh, Seminole, um, they have the the celebration of the Seminoles every September uh, in Oklahoma. Is that around Labor Day or before or after uh, after Labor Day or right at Labor Day? Uh, I think it's around the first of September. I'm not exactly certain okay. of the date, but uh, then you also have in um, Oklahoma John Horse who is a very unsung uh, black hero, had uh, established a town for the the blacks who were trying to escape from constant bombardment of the, of the enslavers coming in to try to capture them. He established a town called Wewoka, and now that town has become like the heart and soul of the Seminole Nation in Oklahoma, of which you have uh, remnants of the Black Seminoles there under two bands called the Freedmen's Band. And uh, so in Wewoka, they do have a historical museum of the Seminoles. Um, in Mexico, it's a very poor society now, so they don't have 
very much, but uh, there are people there who still carry on the history and the legacy. And of course, in Florida, is the uh, is the Br- is the Bruner band still there in Oklahoma? Yes, sir. was that a, was that a Seminole band? Uh, yes, I believe they are still there. There is a descendant of the Creeks, a black Indian by the name of Doug Savard, who has a uh, CD on Mexico and Texas and the Seminole um, settlements and the various things that are happening there. So your listeners could get quite a bit of information from his site, www.dougsivad.com. And, of course, my book, um, Free Globally, the International Underground Railroad, uh, when I write about the Seminoles, I don't write as a historian per se. I write as a storyteller, so I tell it according to uh, how a storyteller would relate the story. And uh, you have quite a number of indigenous uh, descendants who have written about the Seminoles. We are Florida by the late Issa Ham Bryan, who founded the Florida Black Historical Research Project, and uh, Dr. Roslyn um, Jeffries, who did Black Seminoles of the Bahamas. And then you have uh, non-indigenous Seminole, uh, non-indigenous historians who have done some great work on the Seminoles, uh, the Black Indians by uh, William Lauren Katz, and a book that I really, it's a very small book, but I found some very important facts in it called Honey Like a Wolf by Milton Meltzer, uh, until I started doing some research in that little book, I didn't know that the Seminoles had gone uh, in, on the coastlines. This is why they tried to remove them from the coastlines, because when the slave ships were coming in with the Africans after slavery was supposedly stopped on the waterways, they would attack the ships and free the Africans that were on those ships. And so you had a number of them. The Fort Mose that you spoke of, a number of them were in that Fort Mose community. Mm-hmm. Um, someone sent an email in, and they're curious about a Cherokee by the name of Sequoia, also known as George Sequoia Gist, G-I-S-T. Uh, do you have any information on him and his relationship to the Trail of Tears? Um, No, because the Cherokees, when the Seminoles uh, went into Oklahoma, they settled, some of them settled among the Cherokees rather than the Creeks, who had kind of been uh, an enemy force working with the military to capture and enslave them. But that was the extent of their uh, dealings with the Cherokees was when they went into Oklahoma and some like Wildcat and John Harse's uh, people settled among the Cherokees for a brief period of time. But uh, I didn't really research Cherokee history. My uh, area of uh, research has been basically black Seminole history. Black Seminoles. Yeah, and I think uh, Sequoia uh, first went to Arkansas and eventually went to Texas, if memory serves me right. Uh, But what about the uh, Seminoles and the Trail of Tears? Uh, What treaty provoked them into that Trail of Tears, and what year was it? And uh, were they ever compensated for their lands? Uh, 
Well, in Florida, they had uh, numerous treaties that uh, they were signed and were dishonored, um, and one treaty they had was the Treaty of Fort Payne, uh, where they were to uh, give up a certain amount of the land around the coastal areas because they wanted to stop them from being able to have access to that international trade and to uh, these other countries that were dealing with them. And so uh, they were sent into the, more the interior of Florida where the land was terrible. They were uh, about to starve there. and So they had a number of different treaties that were dishonored, and they uh, never really agreed to go to Oklahoma. They had sent a group of people uh, to represent them, to look at the land and to see if it was worth them giving up their original homeland to go there. But uh, the representatives who went there did not agree to that. In fact, they couldn't really sign for the whole tr tribe, the whole nation, rather. And when they came back, they were more or less forced to go. But they, they, uh, when they went, they went basically by boat. They went on a boat via New Orleans, and then they had to go a certain distance by foot. But a lot of their journey was by boat because they didn't really want them mingling with the other Native Americans on that Trail of Tears because they were mm -hmm. a group of, of, of Native Americans and black Seminoles who had resisted to the nail. And so um, basically that was their, their dealings with the Trail of Tears, mostly by boat, of quite a few miles by, by foot, and they, like a lot of the other Native Americans, lost a great many of their members in traveling to this new destination. Now, the Trail of Tears was part of uh, the forced removal of the five civilized tribes from the southeast part of the United States. And the trail, they came over ground for the most part. And actually, the Natives referred to it as the trail where we cried as opposed to the Trail of Tears. Um, and that was President Andrew Jackson's um, goal was discovered in Georgia in the late 1820s, and that uh, prompted him to start the uh, forced removal of the five civilized tribes. Um, are you aware of any uh, Seminole powwows in Oklahoma or the Texas area? And are the Seminoles now... Uh, involved in the casino movement in either uh, Oklahoma or Texas. And, uh, and what about the uh, the Seminoles that are still in Florida? Yes, you had a small number of Seminoles who were, they were ne never able to get out of Florida. In fact, about 200. Uh, that's why they call themselves an unconquered people. And th those 200 were under a Seminole by the name they called him, and uh, the Americans called him Sam Jones, but he was uh, he was a uh, Seminole shaman by the name of Abiyaka, and they were never able to photograph him. He, would, he refused to sign any treaties, and he was a very staunch and very uh, radical Seminole in terms of staying on the land where his people had been born 
for generations. And that contingent that remained there, the descendants, now have become a very, very powerful force in Florida, very wealthy force. Uh, they have a lot of casino holdings. They have a museum in Florida. Uh, they have their own airport. And so, yes, they are highly involved in that casino. Movement. And what's, what's, what city in Florida? Uh, that, um, see, they're around uh, Hollywood, Florida. They are uh, near Fort Lauderdale. You have another okay. group that's a different segment of their closely uh, aligned, but a different segment called the Miccosukees. Uh, so they're around that area, Hollywood, Florida, and also near Fort Lauderdale and near Miami. Are they? Yes. Are there any documentaries out there that you would suggest for our young listeners, since this is Black History Month, uh, that are related to uh, the Black Seminoles? Well, what I can do, I have quite a number of documentaries on the Seminoles that I could recommend, and I could also recommend literature that uh, has been written by. What would be, what would be the top three? documentaries that you would recommend? Okay, let me see. Um, there is a documentary on... Um, let, I'm looking through them for the exact title. I don't want to just give you the title off the top of my head, but there is one called... Um, Black Seminoles in the Bahamas, the Red Bay story. I find that of particular interest because I uh, am aligned with that Seminole family that comes out of uh, the Bahamas. There is another documentary called Looking for Angola, A-N-G-O-L-A, where uh, archaeologists and historians are excavating a lot of Black Seminole sites in Florida to find more information on the lifestyles of the Seminoles. So those are two that I could recommend right off the top of my head. I can give a, um, come up with a list of others, and if they email me at akan at aol.com or go on my website in about a week, blackseminoles.com. I will list some other documentaries. Okay, so that was uh, A-K-A-N yes, at AOL.com. Right. Okay, and what was that website again? Uh, blackseminolesplural.com, www.blackseminoles.com. Okay. And I've also, and, uh, I'll also be doing some articles on the Black Seminoles for a Facebook page uh, on Black Indians called uh, I Love Ancestry uh, on Facebook. I Love Ancestry. So I'll also um, put those documentary listings there. I Love Ancestry, and that's on Facebook. Yes. Okay. And do you have a Facebook page? Okay, I don't have a Facebook page on Black Seminoles. I have that base, my Seminole information 
and I book information basically on the Black Seminole site. I have a personal um, webpage, the Linda Cousins Newton. Okay, and uh, the um, see, so you said something about I Love Ancestry, and I believe she's a friend of uh, the Guest of Freedom. Her name is Adrian Hextall. Oh uh, yeah, his name. Is that right? His name, or, Adrian. Hextall. His name. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, Adrian Hextall, and we want to send a shout out to him uh, because I believe he introduced uh, you to our producer. Well, no, um, that was. He may have uh, mentioned me to the producer, but that was Professor Sophia Bandelli who made that introduction. Oh, okay. And I do thank yes. her very much, and I also thank Adrian for his interest in my work and wanted me to contribute to his uh, page. Okay. Now, you mentioned Bahamas again, and earlier you said it was the an island called Andros? Uh, yes, where the Black Seminoles uh, fled when they were under attack and they were in, at risk of being enslaved and some re-enslaved. They fled to Andros, Bahamas. And when I was doing research to teach a course online on the Underground Railroad, I found that my husband was descended from those black Seminoles who had fled in the 1800s, 1820s to Andros. And his grandfather, in fact, Reverend Bertram Newton, is the first uh, person in the Bahamas to document uh, information on the black Seminoles of the Bahamas. So, yes, you now have a very, very active community of black Seminole descendants in the Bahamas. Uh, you have the uh, Network for Freedom uh, that has gone there and, and has uh, had programs and are looking into developing a closer link with the historical uh, antecedents there in the Bahamas. Okay. Are there some... Um Movies relative to the Black Seminoles in the Bahamas well, that you're aware of that are out in the, uh, like Looking for Angola? Is that a. Uh, Looking for Angola is uh, of some Florida anthropo um not anthropologists, but uh, Florida archaeologists. Uh, oh, okay. Yes, and so that's basically in Florida. Um, the movie on the Bahamas, the Black Seminoles in the Bahamas, the Red Bay story. Um, this is done by a historian by the name of Dr. Melvin Dunn of Florida, and he produced this movie on the Black Seminoles in the Bahamas called the Red Bay story. I say by Dr. Melvin Dodd, D-O-D-D. -D? Uh, no, Dunn, D-U-N-N. Done, D-U-N-N. -N. Yeah. Okay. And it's called the Red Base. Uh, it's called the uh, Black Seminoles in the Bahamas, the Red Base Story, B-A-Y-S. B-A-Y-S, Red Base Story. Okay. Now, if people are taking a cruise down through the Bahamas, are those Andros Islands? On any cruise lines that you're aware of? No, uh, the cruise lines don't actually go to Andros, but if they get to Nassau, they have what's called the fast 
boats that do go into Andros, and they have a very short, um, can take a very short uh, airline flight to Andros from the Nassau Airport. So um, they wouldn't be able to get there by cruise ship, but by some of the smaller ships called the fast, the fast ferries. Okay. Uh, we're coming up in the last three or four minutes here. Uh, tell us a little bit about your Nana Tubman uh, project or the Ghana project in addition to uh, you mentioned earlier when we open up about a book you've written uh, tell us about that right quick before we run out of time here okay uh, the Nana Tubman Honoring Ghana project is basically a project where uh, we were able to have Nana Harriet Tubman installed posthumously as a queen mother uh, in Ghana in 2000 and in 2005, uh, John Watusi Branch of the African Poetry Theater, the Center for Culture African Poetry Theater of Queens, New York, and I uh, spearheaded a project where uh, we took a group, including three Tubman descendants, to Ghana, and there was a street named for her. Uh, there's a statue of uh, Nana Harriet Tubman, I call her Nana, because she's now a queen mother, in Ghana, there's a statue in Maburi, Ghana, and all of this was hosted and made possible by Nana, uh, ya, uh, Nana Yadom, Seibowashi Yadom II, one of the first female chiefs of Ghana after Nana Yaasantiwa. And the statue was uh, created by a very uh, talented uh, Ghanaian sculptor by the name of Apoku Bini. So you have a Tubman statue in Ghana. You have a street named for her. You have a stool for her in the stool house. And she has been installed as a queen mother posthumously in Ghana. Okay. And uh, is there a website or a page uh, that talks a little bit more about that? Okay. The page Banana is... Banana Tubman? Uh, yes. The page uh, is a little long to, to just... Uh, give that to you by phone, but if I'm emailed okay. again at akan at aol dot com, uh, I can send them more information on that and direct them directly, uh, and send them directly to the website. Okay, great. And tell us about your book. Okay, my book is called Free Globally: The International Underground Railroad, and it. Relates in a storytelling fashion those Africans who were able to go to international terrains um, from escaping and becoming freedom seekers on the Underground Railroad. And a lot of it is centered on the Black Seminoles. I also talk about my personal uh, work with the Black Seminoles, with the Nana Tubman and Honor. Honor in Ghana project, and also having had the honor of taking uh, what probably were quite a number of black Seminole descendants from the Bahamas and the States to perform in the Super Bowl uh, in 2000. It's a Jonkanoo, which is a great uh, African-centric festival in the Bahamas. I was, got a contract. I took them to the Super Bowl in 2000, which turned out to be right at the site where a lot of black Seminoles had been in Tampa in that year. So this book talks quite a bit about those freedom, liberty, embracing people who 
got all the way to international terrain, not just to the promised land of, of, of the north, but to international terrain on the Underground Railroad. And it can be... How did... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just saying that it can... Uh, uh, you can find more information on it on blackseminoles.com or also if okay. you email me and then... Um, I will be writing more about the Black Seminoles in the book as I do a blog post at EZ articles for I Love Ancestry. And um, what impact did the 1850 fugitive slave law have? What effect did that have on the Seminoles? Are you aware of any effect that that had on them? Not uh, on the Seminoles per se because they were already... Uh, in, they were already in Florida, which was under foreign control at that time. But on in terms of those uh, African descendants who were in the north, it caused a great exodus of people into Canada because they were at risk of losing their freedom, even if they had never been in bondage. And so this is when you had migrations of free people as well as those who had escaped into the north going into Canada. And you also had Nana Harriet Tubman taking people further um, away from the, the south into Canada at that period of time to keep them from being re-enslaved. Mm-hmm. And you said that you found out that your husband, how did you get involved in this research and involved with the Seminoles? Because I think you stated earlier, it was after you got involved with the research that you found that your husband was descended. So what sparked your interest before you knew any of that? Well, since the 1980s, I had been doing research and writing about uh, contributors to the Underground Railroad, Mother Harriet Tubman and some of the other contributors. I was doing storytelling on that, and I was um, do we were doing a storytelling musical on the life of Mother Tubman. Then I started to expand my research beyond the uh, the Americas because I had married a Bahamian and I wanted to find if there was any linkage to from the Bahamas to uh, the Underground Railroad because I noticed they had very much uh, language and food patterns like the South. And when I started to do the research to find if there were actual linkages, I found that indeed there were and there, in the midst of the research for that Underground Railroad course, in the book, Black Seminoles of the Bahamas, was my husband's family name and about his grandfather. And the people in Nassau, where he lives, didn't know very much about it. Uh, but those in Andros knew a lot about it. So it was that's how I found out about the connection with the Bahamas, with the International Railroad. And who was the author of that book, uh, Black, Baha uh, Black Seminoles in the Bahamas? Okay, that book is by Dr. Rosalind Howard. I think I called her Jeffress before, but this is Dr. Rosalind Howard. She's a Dr. Florida... Rosalind Howard. Yes, historian, educator, and anthropologist. And in fact, 
they had a, a couple of years ago, they had a International Underground Railroad conference in the Bahamas, and Dr. Howard was there as one of the speakers, and she also went over to Andros with the network uh, for freedom people and spoke in Andros in terms of the Seminole uh, heritage there. Are there any other books that you would recommend um, in addition to your own book? Is there any other books in the book you just mentioned? Are there any other books you would mention uh, for our listeners to find out more about this uh, unique part of uh, black history? Okay, yes, there are quite a number of other books that I would recommend. In fact, uh, Um, when they contact... The best two or three. The best two or three. Well, the yeah. um, in terms of overall black Indian connection, um, you can find a lot of information in Dr. William, not Dr., but William Lauren Katz's Black Indians. Um, okay. That's one book, Black Indians. In terms of the... Um, the women, which there's not a great deal of information on the women, but the women were very powerful in terms of being spiritual leaders, dream interpreters. It was a matriarchal society, so you can find quite a bit about the women in dreaming with the ancestors, black Seminole women in Texas and Mexico by Shirley Butler Mock. M-O-C-K, and then uh, We Are Florida, from the Florida Black Historical Research Project, the late Issa Ham Bryant, from an indigenous Seminole descendant's point of view, We Are Florida, R just being the one word, R, and Doug Savard's Seminoles in Texas and Mexico, Seminoles in Texas and Mexico, Doug Savard, S-I-V-A-D. S-I-V-A-D, okay. Yes, in fact, he has a website, DougSavard.com, where you could find more information on his work on the the Seminoles. Okay, when you were talking about the... uh the Tubman Project. Did you mention something about an anniversary, the Harriet Tubman anniversary? Uh, yes. This year they are having a lot of uh, celebrations around the, the Tubman uh, anniversary, 100 years anniversary of her uh, her death. And a friend okay. of mine who uh, was a filmmaker for our Nana Tubman Honoring Ghana Project, Marilyn Herod, and I will be speaking at uh, one of those anniversary celebrations, but the date hasn't been finalized yet. But they are having quite a number of activities around that. And where will those activities take place? Um, There are a number of them that will be taking place in her last uh, home place of of residence, Auburn, New York. Auburn, New York. Yes, Auburn, New York, and in that uh, area where she lived her last days, Auburn, Syracuse, places of that sort. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Linda Cousins, 
Newton is who we've been talking to, a storyteller, historian, and writer, and educator, uh, educating us on the uh, Black Seminoles of Florida and Indian Territory. I uh, really appreciate your uh, taking time out of your busy schedule, uh, Miss Newton, Miss Collins Newtons, to be with us this evening. I would remind our listeners that this Thursday, eight o'clock Eastern Time, we'll be right back here at the Guest of Freedom to continue the reading of the Black Abolitionist book by Benjamin Quarles. And um, my name is Preston Washington. Uh, bidding you a good night. Thank you very much, Mr. Oh, Washington. yes, just before we uh, go off here, I uh, want to remind the audience, too, of a screening at the um, Malcolm X and Betty Shabazz uh, Educational Center in Harlem, New York, um, Slavery by Another Name. Uh, that'll be in New York City. It'll be February the 16th. Um, Ilyasa Shabazz, the daughter of Malcolm X, will be your hostess, along with our very own Leslie Gist and a panel of distinguished uh, historians. And um, Sam Pollard will also be there, who's the filmmaker. And um, uh, for the um, for the uh, premiere of Slavery by Another Name, which is a book, a documentary based on the book by um, Mr. Blackman, Douglas Blackman. So if you're in the New York area, be sure to attend that February the 16th, Saturday. And uh, again, uh, thank you uh, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Uh, That time in New York will be 7 p.m., and um, the engineers tells me it's really time now to say good night. Good night, everybody. Good night. Thank you again. <laughs>